Praise the Lord. If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Starting in verse 2. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 2. It says, These are the things that you are to teach and insist on. How many can tell Paul is being careful to make sure that they not only teach it, but what? This is an imperative. This is a command that don't just teach it, but insist that it's taught this way. He uh, actually is toward the end of his life, Paul is, and he's giving instructions. He's, he's, he's giving instructions to Timothy about how to administer um, teaching in the church and how to really watch over the churches and how to care for the people. And he's trying to make sure that Timothy teaches certain things that are very important to Paul, who's at the toward the end of his life now. How many know this is important? Sometimes we don't value how important these are, but Paul is literally toward the end of his life and trying to pass on the faith to the churches through Timothy and through those that he's established in the churches. And uh, so he says, teach it and insist on it. If anyone teaches otherwise, this is instructions of Timothy, and does not agree to the sound instruction of who? Our Lord Jesus Christ and the godly teaching. Okay, so he's not only saying insist on it. He's saying if anybody in your midst in the church, um, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ and the godly teaching, they are what? They're conceited or arrogant and they understand nothing. Paul, just tell them what you think, all right? So if they're not listening to what I'm saying in this teaching and they're teaching otherwise, they're conceited and they're arrogant and they don't really know anything. Because Paul's message is coming from who, Paul? No, he just said it's from the Lord Jesus Christ and I want you to insist that it's taught this way. They have an unhealthy interest. Who's they? The ones that are teaching something different. They have an unhealthy interest in controversy and quarrels. How many know people in the church sometimes have an unhealthy interest in controversy, quarrels about words? And these result in what? Envy, strife, which is fighting, malicious talk, which means did you know that so-and-so leader is this or so-and-so leader is that? evil suspicions, constant friction between people of corrupt minds who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Well, he threw something different in there now. He's starting to talk about what their false teaching is that he disagrees with and that he insists that you don't teach it this way. Did you catch that? He's trying to show them that These false teachers are actually teaching that godliness is a means to temporary worldly gain, okay? Or financial gain, it says here in this version. But godliness with contentment actually is great gain. 
He's saying there is a great gain in godliness, but what they're teaching is it's the worldly gain, temporary gain, things that are in front of us kind of gain, not the kind of gain that he teaches, which is the right way to teach it and what he insists upon. For we brought nothing into this world and we will take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into what? Ruin and destruction. And then he uses the famous line, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, he said, have wondered from what? The faith. Well, some preachers told me you can't do that. Paul would wholeheartedly disagree. He said many have wandered from the faith. And pierced themselves with what? Grief and sorrow because they didn't listen to the teaching that Paul insists on, right? But you, he's talking to Timothy, man of God... Flee from this. That means run or depart or get away from it. Pursue righteousness, not the financial gain, okay? Pursue righteousness, godlessness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, Timothy. I added Timothy, but that's who he's talking to. Take hold of the eternal life. Take hold of the eternal life. Chad, aren't you a monergist? That means uh, that's a technical theological term that says we can't reach out and take it. Yet Paul instructs me to take it. Whew. I'm starting off real early here, aren't I? Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That's what we're talking about doing in two weeks in front of everybody. Water baptism, profession in front of many witnesses. Keep that profession. Somebody would say, well, it's automatic, Chad. You don't have to keep it and you don't have to take hold. Maybe that's part of the false teaching that he's talking about here. Because Paul clearly says, take hold of it. What you were called to when you made a good confession of faith in the presence of many witnesses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you, Lord. Father, help us, Lord. To hear the clear teaching from Jesus Christ that was given to Paul and entrusted to Timothy. And Lord, we hold it today, Lord God. And I pray that you would um, help us teach it, Lord God, and help us live it, Lord. And Lord, help me preach it, Lord. Hide me. Lord, make it come alive. In your name I pray. Amen. Hallelujah. title of my message was really difficult. I first titled it Contentment, but contentment is misleading because contentment can mean a passive, I'm okay with everything that's going on around me. I'm happy with what I have. Um, Yeah, I just don't need a whole lot. I'm normally a content person. And I don't think that that really tells us what Paul's trying to say here. So I can't just title it Contentment. Then I redid it and I thought, godliness with contentment. Because this is godliness and being content 
in your godliness, and that kind of gets there, but it didn't satisfy what I felt like God was trying to say through the message. So then I went with content with your godliness. Are you content just to be godly? Like, are you happy with the fact that today I am living a godly life before the Lord and I'm content with that? If that's all I do today, tomorrow, and the rest of my life, I'm pretty happy. And that's what Paul's actually saying here. Content with being godly. And so much of Christian circles, we're not content with just being godly. Not content with just living for the Lord, being faithful to the Lord. We're looking for a million other things to make us content and happy. And we have an inheritance that's waiting for us in eternity. We're going to be literally wealthier than the wealthiest person in the world with that inheritance. And we're worried about getting everything we can as Christians. You say, well, preach that to the world, man. Preach to those sinners. And I want to talk about the mixture that we have as Christians because he's talking to Christians here and he's saying false teachers are rising among the Christians. And what he wants us to do is not have a what he calls here a corrupted mind. And the corruption of our mind comes through. Our culture is one of the most greedy cultures, the most covetous culture, the most... um, Give me all that's mine culture in the world right now. How many would agree with that? How many would debate with me on that? Publicly, right here. Let's do it now. No. <laughs> okay, I'm just playing. <clears throat> but this is to help. I will sing in my spirit people that are trapped in traps. This is the trap that Paul said don't get caught up in if you're a Christian. And I see Christians in our church and in our country and in our world that are caught in this trap and they just can't get out. They don't recognize that it is a trap. They don't recognize that they're caught. They don't recognize that it's killing them in the faith. Paul said not to let it. Many have wandered from the faith because of this trap. How many read that when I read that? They've wandered from the faith because they're caught in this trap. And so I want to kind of give an idea. Number one, the first thing I have to lay foundationally is that this wasn't just bad teaching. This wasn't just a modification of a good teaching. This is false teachers. The one that we're supposed to really be cautious about. And you say, man, how cautious are we about it? Because there are preachers out there that are flying in private jets and private helicopters and sitting on golden thrones on your television while they're talking to you. And boy, this doesn't look like what Paul's talking about here. Paul doesn't look to approve of that. But we tolerate it. But here's some other versions just to show you they're actually false teachers. The one I read said, if anyone teaches otherwise... Well, that sounds like they're just teaching something a little different, right? A little modification. New American Standard, if anyone advocates a different doctrine. So now they're advocating a different official doctrine, right? 
New King James Version, if anyone teaches otherwise. King James Bible, if anyone teaches otherwise and consents not to wholesome words, even the words of Jesus Christ. Christian standard, I like this one. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is solid. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that promotes godliness. Paul is being very straight here. If you're teaching this other one, this is the foundation. If you're teaching this other thing, it's false doctrine and it's contrary to the Lord Jesus Christ who Paul intimately was taught by. And Paul's declaring in his last days of his life that I don't want the church to go this direction. I don't want them to be caught up in this um, covetous, um, greedy society. He's, he's worried about it. But he says godliness is great gain. You notice how he contrasts... Um, He contrasts two lifestyles here by saying that both have great gain. It's interesting that Paul uses great gain for godliness because the false teachers are teaching what? They're teaching that godliness is great gain, which means that through serving the Lord, I'm going to get all this incredible temporary gain. And so all you have to do is go to a Christian bookstore and see all of the success that God is going to give in this temporary world of worldly things to Christians, if they'll just bow their knee to God, He's going to just pour temporal, non-eternal, worldly things into your lap so you can live in the lap of luxury and float to heaven in a cloud. And this doesn't mean that God doesn't bless you. God doesn't give you the wisdom to make good decisions. God doesn't give you the wisdom to save money. God doesn't give you the wisdom to purchase things that are enjoyable and things you need and things you even want. God wants to add those things to your life. He just wants your priority to be seek Him first and His kingdom. And this doctrine evidently was going away from that and seeking gain in temporal things over eternal things. And so he says, well, godliness actually is the greater gain. He contrasts the two. He says there's greater gain in the godliness than there is the gospel of temporary gain for your life. And so he begins to expound how godliness is the better path and the false teaching is going after all the temporary things. And they'll mess you up and they'll put you in a trap and you may wander from the faith. I may know this to be true. I don't have to get into a theological discussion, which I can, but I won't. I don't have to get a theological discussion. We've seen people that through their desire for the things of the world, like Demas having, having left the faith and wandered from the faith and lost their focus on eternal things and the things of God, right? We've seen it all around us. We don't have to theological, theologically build a house about that, all right? There was a story from the uh, famous Russian author, Leo Tolstoy. And he tells a story about a greedy 
rich young man. And the name of the short story that he wrote was, How Much Land Does a Man Need? And this greedy, wealthy young man um, responded to an inquiry. And the guy made an offer and he said, As many steps as you can walk, everywhere where your feet walk will be your land. And the only thing you have to do is be back at the starting point by sundown. When the sun disappears, if you're not back at the starting point, you lose all of your money. And so he paid a sum of a thousand rubles and began his journey. And this is so much like life. How much land does this man need? Well, you can imagine how excited he was because I'm going to get everything I possibly, I'm going to really move fast. And so he went as fast and as far as he could to get as much land as he possibly could to get a better deal. And he journeyed as far as he could possibly go, and then he finally looked in disappointment, and he said, I better hurry it back. I'm so far away. I better hurry back or I'm going to lose all of it. And so he rushed back and he watched the sun, rushed back, watched the sun. Finally, as the sun was setting and he was weary and, and, uh, um, he just didn't have all, almost anything left and, and he, and he tried to make it back to the starting point. And right as he crossed the line, as the sun went down, he fell to the ground and died. And so one of his servants came to begin to dig a hole to put him in. And he said, how much land does a man need? And his servant said, about six feet of land. In life, how many of us do that? We find out everything that I go earn, everything I go try to gather for myself, it might be respect, it might be money, it might be education, it might be all these things. But if it's absent of godliness, it's a waste. You'll have nothing you can take with you from anything other than the things you do eternally for God. And so we run and we run and we run and we run and then the sun starts to set on our life. And man, you don't know if that's 25 20, 15, 10. You might live to be 70. You might live to be 80. But how many know the sun is going to begin to set and you're going to look up and you're going to say, man, I better hurry and get back to the starting point. And will you have anything that's of any value when you come to meet the Lord to give an account. Think about it. So we've got to answer this question. It becomes a really important question. What is contentment? Well, one of the uh, definitions for contentment, if you look at the English word, what does it sound an awful lot like? Content sounds just like the word Content, right? So how does contents relate to that? Well, it it turns out they're based on the same word. 
And so if you look at the old English word, it's actually derived from a word that means to hold in and contain. And the implication in the old English word is your heart is like a container. And it holds contents. And so whatever the contents of that container is, you begin to ask the question, am I content with what's in the container? And so the hope in the, in the Word of God is that you found that one pearl of great price. Jesus said, wherever your heart is, that's where your treasure is. He didn't say, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. That's totally different. He said, wherever your heart is, that's where your treasure's at. And so I have to ask the question today so we don't get caught in the trap, where is your heart? Is your heart in temporary things? your heart in the things of the world? Is your heart in worldly success, worldly money, worldly fame, worldly respect, worldly all of these things? Or does your container hold godliness and say, you know what, I want to be pleasing to God. I've found the treasure of my heart. And you say, well, man, I'm going to do both. I'm going to fill my container up with godliness. And I'm going to fill up my container with so much stuff of the world. Man, I'm going to build a bigger box. Because there's a lot of things I want to do. And a lot of things that I treasure. And, and God's like tenth on the list. I'm just being honest, okay? Where's he at on the list? Are you running as fast as you can like the man who's trying to gain as much worldly land as he can get? Or are you like the one that says there's one thing? One thing that I'm happy about and one thing that I treasure and one thing that I will always be content. And that's the Lord. Or is all of your anxiety, all of your worry, all of your fears wrapped around the first nine things that are before God? Everybody in here has to ask the question. How many know that none of us are immune? The young, everybody who understands these concepts has to make a choice. What do I value? What's the contents of my heart that I'm protecting? What is the contents of my heart that I'm pursuing? What is the thing that's important to me in my life? And it will reflect everything about your life. It will reflect your, how you spend your money. It will reflect how you spend your time. It will it'll, it'll affect what your passions are. It will affect how you treat people. It will affect how you act. It will affect what your habits are. I mean, no, this question affects your entire life. And when we present ourselves to God, that's what we're presenting. My life my passion, my treasure. It gets quiet. I don't know if I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> this is for me, church. How many know? I'm not trying to nail somebody in the church. I'm saying, Chad, you got problems. I, I love when I have problems. Because you know what? Every time I have a problem and it bothers me, I get better. You know, God's able to change me. God's able to transform me. And man... You know, if you don't think I need transforming, just ask my family. Ask my boys back there. They're like, dude's messed up. He's got problems, man. You should have seen him trying to get me out of bed this morning. I almost gave an atomic elbow to my handicapped son over there. You know, but I mean, no, God wants to change all of us. If we just get real with what we really are and where our pursuits go awry.
How many have been like me? Your pursuits can go awry. They just go totally off course. And we've got to be always reminding the things that we already know. Always. Everything in our culture is geared toward discontent. Everything in our culture is add this and you'll be happy. In fact, the motto, all I want is more than what I'll ever have. I mean, no, that's the motto of every commercial you're going to watch on TV. I must add this in order to be happy. I must have that. Oh, but Chad, that's a new iPhone, man. That's a new gaming system. Let me include the teenagers in here. It's a new gaming system. And really, our heart has to get to the point where we say, godliness is the most important thing to me. Nothing is even in the category in my heart except I want to please God. Even if I have to turn down everything else, please God. Now, the other teachers were saying, godliness will add all these other things and it's going to make you have more things because you're godly. Paul was saying you must be godly first and foremost and even willing to turn down the other things to remain godly. Do you understand? There's no mixture here. So it goes on and and, and just look at the ads. You know, I was just kind of thinking about these ads here. To be happy, I need this. You can't be happy unless you own this. If you want to enjoy life, you need this. How many know that we're constantly bombarded with that? Do you even recognize that? We're in a culture of merchants. We're in a culture where they must convince you that you're not happy in order for them to make money. And I'm not saying it's wrong because there's a lot of things we need. There's a lot of things that make our life better. But it should never affect my happiness. Should never affect my anxiety level. Should never affect all the root things that are trusting God. Right? Hallelujah. I'm going to hallelujah, amen myself. So let me ask you, are you content with your life? Here's three things I wrote down with how people's contentment level is with their life, and I want you to think what category you may be in. Some Christians get sucked into a life of discontent. Paul's telling us not to, but still some of us have been sucked into that trap of being discontent Christians. And so we're Christians and we should know better. Sometimes we've just never been taught this message that it's wrong. Our culture is so strong. And you notice he said that their minds were corrupted. And so we have corrupted minds, and sometimes it's out of innocence. We don't know it's been corrupted by society. We have bought into the lie that I'm really discontent because I don't have the the better car. I don't have the better house. I don't have the better job. 
I don't have the latest iPhone. I don't have the latest gaming system. So we live our lives discontent. And some of you guys know this is true. I see that look. That look is you're talking about the other guy. But how many know some of us are discontent? We're not happy with what we have ever. We only see what we don't have. And we're discontent, right? Here's another one. Some are content with the wrong things. Yeah, I'm content because I have a good family. I'm content because I'm healthy. I'm content because I have a good job. I'm content because I have just enough to pay my bills. Praise the Lord, what a good God. But here's the thing. What if your family's not doing so well? What if you're paralyzed from the neck down? What if your job you find is gone and you're unemployed? What if you find out, and I know this never happens to anybody, but what if you find out there's not enough money to pay the bills? Well, that just shattered your contentment. You understand? Some people are content in the wrong things. My contentment is that I'm living a godly life. I love the Lord and for better, for worse, for sickness and in poor, for health and in non-health, I'm going to live for the Lord. And I'm content in having Him. I'm content with godliness. If I don't have all these other things that I put my contentment in, now I'm discontent. I'm just like the first guy who was discontent and didn't know any better. Now I'm discontent because things aren't going my way. It can't be based on these things. You have to be content with your godliness toward the Lord, that I love the Lord and He's the treasure in my heart. And as long as I've got that, I don't care about everything else. One of my best friends is a paraplegic from the neck down. He was my assistant coach in every team that I ever coached. He would lead my group in prayer before every game, practices. Um, When we went to high school together, we played football together. In fact, he was coming to pick me up the day that he got in the accident and and, and he's been quadriplegic since. And he tells me all the time, he's given testimony. He'll probably come here and give a testimony when he gets, he's been in bed for several months with a, um, with a um, infection that's it's trying to keep from his bones, you know, and he's just, he's my age, he's been like that since 17. And he tells me all the time, says, Chad, if I would have never gotten that accident, I would never live for the Lord. And that accident caused me to live for God. And that accident caused me, and, he's, and he has uh, a whole family now. He homeschools all of his kids. He's We have more in common now than we did in high school because he's a strong Christian, I'm a strong Christian. And I can guarantee you this, his contentment is not wrapped up in his health. It's just not. And if yours is wrapped up in your good family and your bank account and your health and all these things, if you're stressed when you don't have it, you've got your contentment in the wrong things. And, And that's following this false teaching that Paul's warning us about. And I've got to stress false teaching because if we don't know it's false teaching, we'll hold on to it and we'll just say it's a modification. Chad teaches it, but the other people don't. Right? The third one. 
is those who are following sound teaching, good teaching, teaching that came from the Lord Jesus, and they're content with their godliness. That as long as I've got God, I'm happy. You understand that? If God doesn't do another thing for me for the rest of my life, I'm happy. Because I have an inheritance waiting for me. If I have to be homeless for a period of time, you know, in fact, they tell a story about a man who was the most content man in the world. And he went to his uh, room and there was just a little piece of bread and some water. And he looked at the table and he said, Praise God. Godliness plus bread and water. Some of you won't get that your whole life. Godliness, inheritance, future with the Lord, the wealthiest person that ever lived. I don't work. I don't cry again. I have no sickness again. I'm going to a place that God has prepared for me, a mansion bigger than anything I could ever imagine or even think of. Plus, I got a crust of bread and some water. And some of you have a whole lot more than that in your cupboard and you are the most discontent, spoiled, rotten people in the world. And I'll tell you later what I really think. (laughs) Amen? So how do you become a contented person? Think about the past week. What was your pursuit? What was your pursuit over the last week? Now, obviously, it would be irresponsible not to provide for ourselves, right? Not to provide for our shelter, not to provide for our food, not to provide for the needs that we have. That's just a a given. How many know the Bible says that those who work not eat not? Well, that's a hard word because they were taking advantage of the Christian charity and they were soaking it up on everybody else's dime and Paul said, that doesn't happen. He said, you know how I lived. He said, everywhere I went, I could have taken money like these sage philosophers that came through your community, but never did I do that. I worked really hard. You know, they healed people with aprons. You know why? Because Paul was working. He was working his job. He was in Corinth and he was working, uh, making tents and they needed to pray for somebody. So Paul took his sweaty apron that he was working with, anointed and said, hey, take that. I don't need to be there. He said, oh, I thought it was more mystical than that. No, he was working. So they had to go do it because Paul insisted. He didn't have to do that, you know. He insisted because he didn't want to have a group of people that didn't work. I'm not getting any amens. Amen. It's a part of the Bible as much as, uh, you know, the golden rule is. All right? (laughs) Did I say that? Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's as much a part of the Bible as that is. Paul was teaching that life. So how do I become a content person? Think about your pursuits during the week. We have to go to a job. We have to provide for ourselves. We have to do the things the Bible calls us to do. But what is my passion? What is my pursuit? 
If your pursuit is a dog-eat-dog world, that means that um, I'm aggressively doing the same thing the world's doing. To get ahead at work, what do we all do? Fight. When I've been wronged, what do I do? Fight. Church, I'm speaking to myself. What are my pursuits during the week when we're wronged, when we want to get ahead at work, when we want to get ahead in life? Is our pursuit toward godliness or is our pursuit toward the material things? And you can tell a lot about your life by the way you behaved in the last week. Pursuing godliness at work. You say, well, that's that's my secular job. I pursue godliness after I leave work. I keep the secular secular and I keep the godly godly, right? You're ungodly. God's saying when you go to work, pursue godliness. Pursue eternity. Pursue that over getting ahead at work or when somebody wrongs you going after them. I mean, no, my mind is corrupted. I was taught my whole life to fight and to be a fighter. And when wronged, destroy the other person. I may have been taught that. And so I've got a whole lifetime of serving the Lord where God's trying to purify my corrupt mind. That's what he's talking about here. How many know that? Purifying the desire to get back, purifying the desire to pick the temporal over the eternal, right? And God's purifying us. That's why I preach a message like this. It's not like turn the switch on, I'm good, and turn the switch off, I'm bad. It's, man, I need to focus on these things every day because we're somewhere in the middle, right? We're trying to pursue, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and other things, I'll add them to your life, right? There was a man, in fact, it's a story of a rich man, just an old legend. I don't know if it actually happened or not. It's called The Rich Man and the Dumb Servant. The rich man and the dumb servant. The servant was so ignorant that the rich man was very harsh toward him. He said, you're the dumbest servant that I've ever ever seen. And just a very harsh, very mean, very... How many know that people in a position of authority can be really mean sometimes? And so as he was leaving on a trip, he, he gave this servant a cane. And he said, here's what I want you to do. And this is really harsh, I know. He said, you're so dumb. You're the most ignorant person I've ever known. And I want you to hold on to this cane. And when you find somebody who is less intelligent and more ignorant than yourself, I want you to give it to them. So this man, he wasn't very smart. He genuinely went to look for somebody that was dumber than himself. And he couldn't find anybody. He would occasionally come across somebody who was kind of ignorant, and he would say, well, wait a minute, you know, let me compare here. And sure, I'd, he probably didn't have any self-esteem, right? And he's like, no, no, I'm much dumber than him, much more ignorant than he is. And so he kept on. Well, finally, the guy came back from the trip, and he was dying. He was an older man and was toward the end of his life. And he was laying on his bed. He was a very wealthy man. And 
and the servant came in and he and he's just very respectful and very loving and just you know this guy's a kind-hearted guy, right? He said, "Is there anything I can do for you to make you more comfortable?" And he said, "No, I'm I'm going to be gone soon." And the servant said, "Have you done anything to prepare for your trip?" And he said, no, I haven't. And he goes, could you have done something? And he said, yes, I could have. And he said, will you do something? And he said, no, I won't. And so he handed him the cane. And he said, I finally found a man more ignorant than I. And church, how can you listen to this message and not do anything toward the way of godliness? When you know you've got to prepare, you know you're going to die, you know you're going to face God, and we're still living for the pursuits of the world over the things of God. And that's all he's trying to tell us here. Don't do that. You can have all the worldly success in the world, but if you don't have God, the Bible says, what does it profit a man? To gain the whole world and lose his own soul. So what is contentment? Contentment is not... How many of you know there's a thing called stoicism? Stoic. If you've ever heard of stoic, that means somebody's going through something very harsh and they're emotionless. They're like a mighty steed. Yes, my world has fallen apart, as you can tell but I'm strong and I'm stoic and I'm not showing it. And see, this isn't stoicism. In fact, stoicism was one of the lies that Paul was fighting. The stoics seemed noble, but how many know stoicism is just ignoring everything around you? Stoicism doesn't give you any compassion for the people around you. It doesn't do anything to help the people around you. It doesn't anything to change you as a person. He's not talking about stoicism when he talks about contentment. So it's not stoicism. It's not just ignore it and and be passive about it. And It's more like Jim Elliott. How many have ever heard of Jim Elliott? 28 years old, died as a martyr. And his wife wrote, Elizabeth Elliot wrote many books about his dedication and devotion to the Lord. Listen to this quote that he gives. He is no fool. This is 22 years old in his journal. He dies at 28. Gave his life completely to the Lord. He says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool to give up what he can't keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Think about that $50. $50. I can't take that with me. I'm going to die and I'm not going to have that 50 bucks when I stand before the Lord. But if God... And my desire is to help the people around me. I mean, no, that's a reward that I will never lose. God will reward me for every tiny little thing that I do for Him. Let me know that. 
Your contentment has to be tied. To be the correct contentment, it has to be tied with godliness. It can't just be contentment. It has to be connected with godliness or it's a false content. How many know that? Amen? I'm trying to follow my notes because I don't want to miss anything. Listen to the scripture here. It says there's constant friction between people of corrupt minds who have been robbed of the truth and who think godliness means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For I brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out. By food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to go rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires. Did you hear that? They fall into a trap in many foolish and harmful desires. We can't say that we're immune to this. If I give up this teaching about living a godly life and trade that in for pursuing worldly things and making that my happiness, then many harmful desires are going to come my way and I'm going to be trapped. So how do I avoid the trap? Well, pretend like you're a big furry mouse with a long tail. You know, some of you are rats anyway. It's not that hard. You know, I'm kind of a rat. That's kind of harsh, isn't it? I'm sorry. But man, think about that trap that's sitting out there. Because when you get up in the morning, this is what the enemy does. And man, when you are a good baiter of traps, you think, man, what would that... You really put your mind into the mind of a mouse, right? It's like, what is that mouse going to like? I don't know. Some people have their own concoction, you know, maybe peanut butter. Maybe they put a little honey on the peanut butter. Maybe they put a little cheese on. I've thought about this way too much, right? But the way that you avoid the trap is don't take the bait. And what's the bait? The things of this world bringing me false happiness. And you say, well, man, that hasn't happened to me except that you've got so many things in your home and you say, well, it hasn't trapped me, it hasn't caught me, it hasn't taken my attention, it hasn't taken my time, it hasn't taken my money, it hasn't uh, made me work exorbitantly. But it's all you think about. It's all you have time to do. In fact, they had a book that they wrote, People Around the World, and they, they just basically went around the world and all they did was put everything you own in the front yard. And we'll take a picture of it and then we'll go to the next country. And so he did this all over the world. And some of the houses that he went to in third world countries, it didn't take him really that long. Everything was in their front yard. But some places in America, as you can imagine, not our houses, but, but it took him literally well past a day to put everything in the front yard. And he was just trying to show things and how much we need to be happy. And if you've fallen into the trap, you need lots of things to be happy. In fact, the things you have, you don't even remember. All you remember is the things you don't have that you really need, right? And so Paul, in order to avoid the trap, he's saying there's a thing here. 
It's called fleeing or running away and pursuing. They're two different things. When I flee, I see it and I run. When I'm pursuing, I draw close to it and try to capture it. Okay, if you're trying to capture and pursue the trap, you're going to have harmful desires. You're going to stray from the faith. You're going to get trapped in something you're going to have a hard time getting out of. But if you flee the trap, then you're not going to get caught up in it. But if you pursue godliness, you're fleeing the trap and pursuing something else that will make you happy. And this is godly contentment, that I'm pursuing the things of God and all those other things aren't even on the scale as far as importance to me. Oh, it gets better. I'm going to take my time. There, I wrote this down. There should be an observable difference between the lifestyles of Christians whose master is God and pagans who are seeking contentment by the things of the world. Maybe I should say that louder. There should be a difference between Christians and the world. If there's no discernible difference, then how are we even unique from the world? If we're all pursuing the same things, how are we any different? If we get upset by the same things of the world, no money, anxiety, fear, worry, how are we even distinguishable? And this is what he's talking about. In fact, he comes down to the center of it. Contentment is actually gotten by changing your focus from the things of this world that are temporary to the things that are eternal. He nails it in verse 7 when he says, I brought nothing into this world, I'll take nothing out of it. You see the shift. The things in this world aren't going with me. I'm going out of this world with nothing in my hands. So why am I spending all my time on these things? The eternal perspective is what he wants us to take. Now let me ask you a question. Let's rank sins. Everybody likes a good ranking, right? So let's rank them. How many think murder ought to be high on the list? I I think it ought to be up there. How many think... um, Idolatry ought to be up there, serving false gods. How many think sexual immorality should be up there? Adultery, fornication, homosexuality. I think these all should be toward the top of our list. How many know that greed or covetousness is called idolatry in the Bible? And how many know it's almost a virtue in our country? Get all that you can get. Have more than the next person. Go get the next greatest thing. And in the church, it's not any different. Covetousness is a serious sin that we need to watch out for. It'll grab a hold of us here, it says, and it'll entrap us. It'll deceive us. It'll give us harmful desires. And and so in our ranking, Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 5.11, not to associate with people who are covetous. You know, it's listed with all of the other sins I just mentioned, but we don't highlight it. I remember a um, 
How many ever remember several years ago, Hansel Vibbert? How many remember that name? You know, you know the name. Great, incredible preacher and just... I mean, he was a prince of preachers, a pastor that I grew up under. He was known around the country. Um, but his ministry, not a lot of people know unless you knew him, his ministry really launched after a vision that he had of a hellbound train. And he had a vision that there was this train that he was a passenger with other passengers, and that train was bound for hell. And so as he was walking in his vision of this train, he was talking to different people that were on their way to hell. And one person that was on that train that I remember very clearly was somebody by the name, I'm not going to tell you his name, but he he um, he had this um, treasure in his hand and he wasn't able to get it out of his hands. It was like stuck to his hands. And it was a treasure that he had collected and and he was on his way to hell, and he said, why are you going to hell? And he said, I just can't get this treasure out of my hand. He said, it's stuck to my hands, and I'm on my way to hell because of it. And it was covet, but it was Achan. It was the man named Achan who took the treasure that God had told them, don't take plunder when you go in this battle. And Achan took it anyway, and his whole family was actually killed on the spot because of what they had done disobeying God. It's very harsh, I know. But covetousness is like that. You know, there are going to be people one day that have coveted things their entire life and God's going to say, hey, why didn't you ever serve me? And it's just going to be like that picture of Achan. All these things we covet. I'm not so sure we won't be on a rail car full of all the things that we got in life. And there are going to be some men that are so wealthy it's going to be hundreds and hundreds of rail cars full of everything they have on their way to hell. Luke chapter 12. I want to, I want to tell you what an internal, eternal perspective, what it will change. Let me see my time here. It's 11.50. Man, i got 10 minutes at least. I'm doing better than I thought. The eternal perspective will protect you from the bondage of greed. Church, really listen because we don't preach on greed enough. All right? We don't preach on this enough. We should. So listen carefully. The bondage of greed. Does everybody see how you can be bound by greed more than things of God? In Luke chapter 12, verse 13, listen to this. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, will you tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me? Do you see what's happening here? His brother took all of the inheritance and he was cheated. He was, he was wronged, wasn't he? Now how would you feel if there was a in family inheritance and you were wronged and he has all the money? See, this is when you find out whether you live for God or you live for the world is when a family goes to the death and there's an inheritance. This is where it really gets real, okay? And some of you need to leave here today and apologize for the way you behave during a time of inheritance. I'm not speaking to anybody that I know or anybody that I, any information that I know. I'm just saying when I was studying this morning, God told me to say that. But it says, 
man, this is Jesus talking to the man, who appointed me to judge as a judge or an arbiter between you and your brother? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on guard against all forms of greed. Life doesn't consist in abundance of possessions. Now something you didn't notice about this, but I did. The Holy Spirit showed me this morning this. He's scolding the one that didn't get anything. Did you notice that? He didn't say your brother is a scoundrel. He's got all the money and you have nothing. You've been wrong, man. And give him a hug while he weeps on his shoulder. He scolds the man that didn't get anything. Why? Because the one is obviously greedy because he took the whole inheritance and it wasn't his. We know he's greedy, but we're self-righteous and we say, look at me, I'm not greedy. I didn't get anything, but I'm bitter at him because he's such a greedy scoundrel. And I'm going to punish him his whole life because he's greedy. And here's the truth. The second man was as greedy as the first man because he didn't care about the eternity of his greedy brother's soul. He cared more about money and worshiped money more than he worshiped the living God who can save his brother's soul. Do you understand? The one that got wronged and had nothing was just as greedy as the one that took it all. And Jesus saying, he, he, he warns him. He says, beware, be careful, because life doesn't consist of the abundance of possessions. It consists on being godly. And the right attitude should be inserted here that I don't care if I have a dime to my name. I don't care about your inheritance. I'm not going to treat you any different. I'm not going to treat my family any different. If I get a part of it, that's fine. But if not, I'm content with the Lord. I love the Lord. I'm more about the Lord than I am about money. Keep your money. I'm not saying don't take the inheritance if it falls in your lap. I'm just saying we are not to have family strife because of stinking old money. God doesn't want that. He wants us to be godly people. Amen. It's a shouting service. (laughs) Money causes conflicts between husbands and wives. How many wives are discontent because their husbands don't make enough money so they can have A, B, and C? How many husbands are discontent because they can't buy the things they want because the money the wife's trying to spend on bills and they want more things? I'm just saying godliness has great gain when you're not living a life of covet. Amen? Praise the Lord, Chad. That's awesome. I mean, know that greed perverts your values. Let's say that you have a wealthy relative and you know they're not living for the Lord, but you want a part of that inheritance. So I'm not going to do anything to upset the apple cart. See, God's calling us to be godly people, not people that line ourselves up for money. Well, I'm going to treat this person pretty good because they have money and this one doesn't. You know, some pastors care who puts more in the offering plate and who doesn't. And can I be honest with you? I don't care. It's not my money. 
I'm not the one that stands account when somebody does and they they don't. You say, well, man, we'll make the money run out and you won't have a job. I'll still be preaching because I'm not here for your money. I'm not here to please you. You can stomp out that door and you can throw a fit as long as you want. I'm not here to please you. I'm here to please God. And in our lives, God wants us to be godly first, please men second. It shouldn't even be in the equation, money, honor, pride, all these things. God says, be godly first. That's your treasure. That's where your contentment should be. I'm pleasing God. I'm happy. But you're not pleasing us, Chad. I'm pleasing God. I'm doing everything I can to please God because that is real godliness. God wants us to please Him first. Hallelujah. Yes, Lord. I will be faithful to preach it. Amen. The third thing... Our second thing, eternal perspective will free you from the bondage of anxiety. The bondage of anxiety. How many have ever had anxiety because they're so worried about having enough, paying my bills, all of these things, and Chad, I just can't get free from the bondage. There's an interesting study that they did during World War II. They had a bunch of orphans. And these orphans had had almost nothing to eat through the war time period. This is a documented study. And they began to come in and began to feed the orphans. And so you think, man, everything's good from here on out. You know, these orphans are going to have food every day. They're starting to look healthier. But they started to notice that these orphans would never sleep well. Even though their bodies were looking healthier, they had food, plenty to eat, they just could not sleep at night and they couldn't figure out why. So they began to study the orphans and you know what the conclusion they came to was? They tried a little test. They had a a hunch that this is what it was. Those orphans had been conditioned in their mind not to have enough. So they were always in fear and worry and anxiety that they wouldn't have a meal the next day. They knew that they were getting meals, but they were so conditioned in their impoverished spirits. You guys listen to me? So they decided that what they're going to do is every room that the orphans live in, they're going to put food on the table, but they're not allowed to touch it till the next day. They get a meal that night before bed. Food is on the table, but they can't have that food till the next day. And do you know that those orphans begin to sleep deeply? Now we pray, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, kingdom come. And then we say, give us our daily bread. And how many of us in our faith are just like those orphans? We've been in the world, the dog-eat-dog world. I've got to go get it, pull myself up by the bootstraps. And we have an orphanic, an orphan spirit. We don't trust God to provide for us. We've got to see the food on the table first. We've got to see to believe. 
And God's saying, I will provide for you. God will provide your daily bread and we can trust Him. But it's so hard for us to get past. But if we have an eternal perspective and not a temporary mindset, that anxiety will go away. The third thing is contentment will remove your fear over circumstances. I mean, I know a lot of people are afraid of, of circumstances. Like, as soon as circumstances start to change, um, how many of you ever watched a movie, um, you know, um, very serious um, program called Elf? And remember they had that little meter on there, and this is not biblical and it's not even correct. But they had that little meter, if they had Christmas spirit and the meter went up, then everything would be all right. I just, I think it'd be cool if we had a faith meter. You know, like you have to have so much faith to receive from the Lord. And when circumstances change and you don't have money, like uh, Josh was talking about this morning, he just kept pushing that boulder and it wouldn't move. But then he realized he got stronger. What if you had a faith meter? And it's like you're sitting here on Sunday morning worshiping and man, faith meter's high. I can do it really well now. But then you go through a hard time in the circumstances, faith meter is down in the red. I'm almost empty here. And what happens is contentment, true contentment and godliness will cause that faith meter to stay high through anything because you're content. It's like, Lord, do whatever. You know, whatever, I'll go through it. At least I got you. If I die, you know, how many have ever been there? I've been there. If I die in this condition, I'm content. If I don't make it out of this condition, I'm content. If I have to live, I've lived in conditions that would make people commit suicide for 10 plus years and was content. Enduring the harshest conditions is what the people of God do because their contentment keeps the faith meter high. Because God, I'm okay. I don't need anything in this world. Naked I entered this world, Job said, and and naked I'll leave. I hope they actually dress me though at my funeral. You know. Sorry, I'm breaking the tension here. Yeah, all right. But circumstances. Here's some areas where when everything starts to... How many know when something's about to... When you have a stone structure and it's about to break, you start to see cracks. And here's where Christians in this society begin to crack. When their faith begins to get low on the meter and their contentment level. I mean, no, we get... um, we, we want to move when the contentment level goes low. We want to start doing something to change it when God's just saying, hey, just stand right there. All right, here's some things that probably won't apply to anybody but me. When the contentment meter and the faith meter gets really low, we start to see a high rate of consumer debt. Chad, can you start talking about biblical things? This is much too practical. We aren't content to live with our means, so we go into debt to live a little bit better than we can af- than what we can afford. We suffer anxiety and pressure 
from having to then pay off the bills. I mean, no, we get discontent, spending spree. Right? That means it's cracking, the structure's breaking, the faith is eroding, right? Two, our discontent is shown in our high rate of restlessness. Restlessness. I got to get out of here. I got to do something different. I got to. I got to go do this. I got to go do that. People rarely stay at the same address for more than five years. They're always on the move. They look for a better house, a better job, a better place to live, raise a family, a place to retire. It's always something else is going to make me happy because God is just not enough. Man, if I get out of this little shack that I'm in, I'll be so much happier. You know what? You might be happier if you're just content with what you have and happy with what you have and and, and, and love the Lord through what you have. Here's a good one. This discontentment causes a high divorce rate. Man, I'm glad it's not in Christian circles. The divorce rate's as high in the church as it is out there, which means we're not living any different sometimes. We can't find happiness in our marriage, so we want to trade in our husband or wife for a different one, only to find that the same problems occur again. Ouch. I mean, I think that's true. Discontentment causes a lot of divorce. Our discontentment causes us to fight constantly for our rights. We always think, man, if I get this right or I get that right, I'm going to be content. Or if people were to treat me this way or that way or this way, and we look to people to to um, validate, man, if they would have only respected me if they would have only said nice things to me, if only I didn't have this childhood, if only I had more money, if only I had this, if only I had that. And God wants us to be content with Him. God doesn't want us always clamoring for validation from people. How many know that this is a major? They say, well, that was a minor point. You had three good ones and that one was minor. That's a big one. People are constantly trying to be validated because they're discontent with who they are, and they're looking for something to blame. Amen? So I'm going to close with this. I usually close with a scripture, and in Philippians 4.11, I believe it is, Paul says, I've learned to be content in all things. Now listen to these quotes. These are just quotes of wisdom that I got. I'm going to close with this. Worship team, if you'd come up. Here's the first one. All the world lives in two tents. Contentment, discontent. Which one do you live in? Evaluate yourself this morning. Are you discontent all the time? Or are you a content person? We've got to figure that out. Where do we live at? Monday morning, where where am I at? Yeah, you look good on Sunday. But Monday, where am I at? Am I pursuing God or am I pursuing the trap? Amen? Contentment is wanting what you have, not having what you want. 
Some of us live our life trying to get what we want, but we don't want what we have. You're just saying, I don't want what we have. The richest person is the one who is content with what he has. Many Christians find it difficult to be content because we typically focus not on what we have, but on what we lack. Contentment is not the fulfillment of what you want, but the realization of what you already have. A Christian is one who does not need to consult his bank balance to see how wealthy he is. Contentment makes a poor man rich. Discontent makes a rich man poor. Hallelujah. Stand to your feet. Praise you, Lord. I was reading the story of um, Ted Williams. How many know Ted Williams, one of the greatest baseball players that ever lived? I mean, his eye for the baseball is unmatched by almost anybody. One of the greatest hitters that ever lived. He was also a World War II pilot that was very decorated, missed part of his career because he was in the war. And I was reading a story about him walking onto the field as a 75-year-old man that had several strokes. And they said as he walked on the field, he was struggling to walk, struggling to move. And he was quoted as saying, they told me this would be the golden years. And yesterday as I watched, uh, I may watch the return of Bobby Knight to Assembly Hall. And he was, they've been waiting 20 years for him to come back. And they waited for the day when Bobby Knight would walk back in. And when you watched him, he was just a shell of the person he used to be. He was having trouble walking. And and church, can I tell you, he lived his life to win basketball games. Sometimes that meant that if they did what he wanted them to do, he had a friend for life. And there were a lot of people that he disciplined to win basketball games. And they love him For the discipline that he created, there are other people that looked at the TV and, you know, like Neil Reed, who he abused on the court. A few years later, died from a heart attack. And I'm sure his family looked and said, why were you so harsh? And how many know there are a lot of people that are looking, and, and I'm sure as an older man... Those wins and those national championships aren't going to mean anything in just a few short years for Bobby Knight. How many know that? Those national championships won't get you anywhere in heaven. Those wins won't get you anywhere in heaven. Basketball success gets you nowhere in heaven. All the money that the wealthiest person in this world has made will mean nothing in eternity. And I'm sure he's looking out at those faces and I just kind of wondered. I seen his son standing next to him. And I just wondered in all that winning and all that success, how close was he and his son? How close was he to his the, the, the kids that played for him? How many parts of his life were ever eternal things that would last? And church, I'm just asking you today to evaluate your life. And think about what your pursuits are, what your passions are, what you're going after in life because God wants to pursue eternal things. When you're dealing with your family, are you mad about temporary things? Or are you pursuing eternal things with your family? Are you still mad at somebody in your family because something they did that's not eternal? 
God's saying, love your family. Because one day you won't have a chance to. One day you won't get to tell them the things you want to tell them. And God's saying, put down all the temporary pursuits and pursue godliness. You'll feel so much better, so much more content if you'll do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, right now, Lord, I just pray right now, Lord, that this message would find hearts would pursue you with all of their heart, their mind, and their soul, Lord God. Lord, we need this reminder, Lord God, that this world is like a vapor, Lord God. It's here and it's gone. And all that will last is what we do for you, Lord. Help us today, Lord. Praise the Lord. Church, this altar is open. Just find a place. We've got nothing else to do today, right? Restaurants are open all afternoon. So find a place and just make a commitment to the Lord. If you need prayer, you say, man, you know what? God's prompted in my heart that I need to ask some family members for forgiveness. We'll pray with you. We'll pray with you at the altar. Maybe you've never given your heart to the Lord. Hallelujah. Let's find a place, church, and let's worship together. Hallelujah. If you need prayer, we're here. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, right now, Lord. Lord, I pray that your spirit would empower us, Lord. Lord, to pursue godliness, Lord. And to flee, Lord God, from the things of this world that entrap us, Lord. Anoint your people, Lord God, to do works. devotion, Lord God, to their God, Lord, that it would be our passion, it would be our desire, Lord God, it would be our purpose in life, Lord, to glorify you in every way, Lord. Oh, yes, empower us by your spirit. Fill us, Lord God, to the full and overflowing, Lord. In your name we pray, and everybody said, amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus.